Welcome to Middle Age Mediocre. I'm Cash, joined by Joel. Joel over there, sitting there. Just Joel. With all of his stuff on. Yeah. His clothes. That's, yep. <laughs> I don't know why I'm upset about this. I have the same stuff you have on. Shirt, hat. You got shoes on, though, and I don't. Oh, so I. Man. You win. Uh. We're back with part two of our Unsolved Mysteries Iceberg. Uh, if you haven't checked out the first one, please go do that. This, this one is going to be a little bit more fun. All right. There's a couple things in here, like disappearances, you know, whatever. Yeah. But overall, it's a lot of uh, uh, more fun mysteries. I like we, fun. We've got... Uh, we're going to be talking about poop in this one. All right. So Shit. There's going to be some poop mysteries. All right. So I hope... You're ready for that. Hey, to dig you through. know I am. Hope you're ready to dig through the shit <laughs> with me on this one. Dig through the shit. <laughs> Burn through the shit. So, uh, yeah, you just want to get... I got a couple stories first. You want to do those first? Yeah, do you want to... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, let's start with those. Okay. So... So I had, a, I, had a, I had a fun interaction last Friday. Okay. So I, why didn't I talk about this? Oh, no, it was Tuesday. So it was after... So that's why we didn't talk about last episode. So I was coming up Grand Central, with which uh, if you're not from around here, that's the big, that's the big busy street in town. Yes, the mall is on Grand Central. All the all the big stores, and everything, Walmart, yeah. the mall. All yep, it's all on that Grand Central. There was like some like Chevy car with like a rah, 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 one of those engines. Yeah, where like they take off whatever it is that doesn't make your car sound like a right. obnoxious douchebag. Like their exhaust is gone. And I was behind it watching this happen, but there's like. It was when it was still the two lane, and like he was trying to roost around someone else, and like they both must have got the same idea. Like let's drive the same speed limit, so this guy can't, you know. Yeah. Which is fun to watch, but I wouldn't recommend it. Not in my younger days, I may have done that, but now I'm just like go around. I'm like just go about just your get out of my bag life. day. Yeah. Like I don't want to be because it's dangerous. Yeah. You know, and I'm not it just you know, but so I'm watching. And I'm getting the little ha 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 ha. You can't. Get, and then finally, when it turns to three, like rah, 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 and you roost around, and then we both end up at the next red light together, just side by side. Right. You know, and I'm just like in a like shit stirring mood kind of deal. So you know that the meme I sent you of Jack Nicholson like nodding his head with his eyes <laughs> yeah. all wide, smiling. That's pretty much what I do to him. I look over and I just smile real big and I just <laughs> nod my head up and down like a like a slow fat kid looking at cake. Like, you're, that's, say, you're saying I'm ready to race. <laughs> or just like I like what you're doing. <laughs> okay. So like I turn back around and then like we're still waiting on the red light and he goes just res it super loud. Rawr, 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 rawr. And I kind of, I like to overact to things. It's fun to me. Like when like I turn a corner and someone's there, I'm always like, "Oh my god!" I act like you know they about knock me over. Like it's the scariest thing in my life. Well, yeah. I, I just I like to overreact. I like the dramatics of it, the th- the theatrics of it. You're a goofy fella. So he does the rah, 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 and I just like in my car act like. It was the scariest thing of my life, you know. Then he rolls down his window, and he goes, Oh, sorry, I thought you liked it. And that's why I did that. I saw you laughing. And, like, that was my chance to be like, Well, I was laughing because you're a stupid douchebag. But, like, I cowered out. I was like, Oh, I'm listening to a podcast. That's why I laughed. He goes, Oh, I'm sorry. It's five minutes away from you. (laughs) (laughs) After the next red light, I was going to do that. And I was like, I don't want this guy fucking listening. But it was just so crazy to me that he... Actually said he did it for my benefit because he thought I liked it. You could have made drove by. You could have made a new friend. I know. But uh, so now the next red light, I made sure to stay back a little bit. So we worked side by side. So I think he's our first nominee for 
hashtag volcano justice. Yeah, I think insert so. Insert eruption yeah. noise here. Bubble, 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 bubble. Because <laughs> I think volcano justice needs to come back. Back yeah. in the day, I mean, it was used for sacrifices mostly. You'd uh-huh. march, you know, virgins up there. Throw him into a volcano to appease the gods. Yeah, but I think now this guy was definitely a virgin. <laughs> well, yeah. if you look over, if you rev your car engine for a guy because you think he likes it, he, yeah, in my fucking beat up Kia Forte, it's like that. Guy, oh, I want that guy to think I'm cool. <laughs> He's like probably like a nineteen year old fucking. I can't believe he didn't think. I thought you were. He was. He thought you were trying to race him. No. That's what I was scared of, too. That he's, you know, that, but I just looked over him, and I just did, like, the big smile and nod, like, yeah, dude, you're the fucking coolest. And he doesn't understand sarcasm. Because I've done that trick to people in my younger days, where oh, they'll yeah. get up beside me and rev their engine, so I rev mine, <laughs> and then, at, like, a red light. Yeah. And then as soon as the light turns green, like, I don't, I just take <laughs> off like normal, and they're fucking flying. You go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I just, I, I just, I, every time I thought of that, since it happened, I just laughed. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you liked it. What a weird <laughs> Like, at least he apologized, I guess, yeah. for being a douche. And I have another no- nominee for the Volcano Justice. Okay. This happened at work. A fella came in to get his glasses, and uh, he's covered in tattoos, you know. For, I mean, he had a shirt on, but it's all, <laughs> his arms were covered. He had a big rose tattoo on his hand. It kind of looked a little prison-y, okay. but whatever. And I'm giving out glasses. I'm doing my thing. He goes, hey, I like your tats, which, strike one. Right. Well, at least he didn't say ink, but still, you like your tats. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. And I knew what he was doing. He wanted me to be like, you like my thing? Like, he wanted I me like to be like, I too. like your tats, too. Yeah. And I didn't like you his wanna, tats. You want to compare tats? I didn't like it. Like, his were the ones that were just, like, all dark, and you couldn't really tell right. what was going on with them, which is fine. I mean, I've seen some really cool dark tattoos, but I have color in mine. I like to, yeah. you know, I like to be a more vivid expression. But, you know, so he's like, I like your tats. I was like, oh, thanks, man. He goes, yeah, I'm thinking about getting a couple. And I said, oh, okay. I said, watch out. They're addictive. So he goes, oh, no, I have them. And lifted his arms like half an inch up higher. Like you couldn't see them? Like I didn't see them before. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, I saw them. And then it was just super awkward from that moment on. (laughs) I, I hate the amount of times I have to hear. Oh, I really dig your tattoos, cool man. Tattoo, yeah. Like, I don't, like, okay, thank you. Like, but we're not having a conversation yeah. about it. Like, some old ladies at work were, like, touch the one they liked. They're like, I like that one. Now, I do. The opposite of that is when you get somebody that doesn't like your tattoos uh-huh. and tells you. Have you ever had that happen? <laughs> no, no, no. I was headed to a wrestling show years ago, and I stopped at a gas station, as you do on wrestling trips, to get, you know, snacks and energy drinks. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting there in, behind, behind somebody in line, and then there's a older woman behind me and as i was the person in front of me turns to leave and i step up start put my stuff on the counter you know you can see my arm better whatever and from behind me i hear this lady say um i don't like those <laughs> and i didn't know she was talking to me yeah and i'm just like dude to do it i kind of turn around to look at her because i didn't hear anything else and i turn around and she's like looking right at me and i go what was oh <laughs> huh yeah what and she goes i don't like those and points i because i had like most of these already. Yeah. And she points to one of them, and I go... Probably the devil. And I go, oh, okay. And she, <laughs> and she goes, you shouldn't have those. <laughs> and I go, it's too late now. Yeah. What do you want me to do? I go, I got them now. And she like, she just goes, ugh. <laughs> and I turn back around to the like guy, like at the, at the, you know, the cashier, and I'm just looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I'm just like, please, let's do this <laughs> as fast just, as... Yeah, let's I need to get out, out of here. here. Uh, well, I have a I have a nominee for, All right. for Volcano Justice. Is it me? I, no. Okay. I need to be. I need to be very careful about how I tell this uh-huh. on the podcast. All right. 
Um, it is me. It's you. You figured, <laughs> it, you figured it out pretty quick. Once a week with tats. He's got tats and ink. So I'm going to leave out some details. Be- and, and I'm only doing this because uh, if anything would potentially happen. So an item was found at my place of work uh-huh. last earlier this week. Rhymes with Mildo? No. Okay. Uh, uh, it was a uh, something that shouldn't just be laying around. And something that could have possibly been used in a crime. Okay. So we find this. Where I work... Not a dildo. Not a dildo. Okay. No, this was not that kind of bandit. (laughs) So, like, well, you know, we find it. Where I work, we have individuals there that are... uh, That have intellectual and and, uh, developmental disabilities. They're protected individuals. We have to, like, be extra cautious with every... You know. Mm -hmm. So we find this item laying outside on our picnic table. And uh, we immediately make sure no one's around it. No one touches it. I call the non-emergency number to get the police down here an officer shows up uh turns out it's not exactly what we thought it was but it could have potentially still been used in a, in a crime of yeah. some sort so i uh and this officer is just kind of uh willy-nilly like waving this item around <laughs> uh and i let them know uh hey we have security cameras i can find that footage for you if you want to know who left it here and they acted so disinterested <laughs> and did not understand why I any we think we would need security footage. And I said, I mean, yeah, it's not what we thought, but it still could have been used for something illegal. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, if you want to look for it, you can. And I go, okay. And he goes, and then he like. You're a sheriff now. He just deputized you. The weird part was he asked me for my, so he asked me for my name, which that's not that weird. Yeah. And my, like a number I could be contacted with. Not that weird because he needs follow up. But then he wanted my middle name. And then he wanted my date of birth. Whoa. Like, I was suddenly, poss- like, <laughs> so I went, uh, yeah, whatever. Like, you know. Uh, so then I find the footage and you see the first. Your middle name is Danger? Yes. Well, I was born 42069. My middle name's fuck around. April 20th, 1969 is my birthday. Last name find out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I find footage of the person that leaves this item, and I call the emergency number back the next day, and I go, hey, I'm just following up on this. I, you know, I told that officer I would if I found anything. Yeah. And again, like the dispatcher there was like, you know what it was, right? <laughs> and I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. And I go, but I told that officer I would look, and he yeah. said if I saw anything to go ahead and in case you guys want to get it. And the guy, like, audibly sighs and then goes, let me see what officer it was. Uh. Yeah. And then he goes, okay, I will – I'll make sure he knows that you found something. They'll be in contact if they want it. And I went, okay, well, it's here, so – and he goes, yep. No. So, like, just, you know, I guess the moral of this story is if you want to commit crimes in this area, go ahead. Yeah. I don't know if anyone cares. Just, yeah. So, and also, just don't call it. Just cops. don't have weed, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the don't, don't, uh, don't be five miles over the speed limit and don't have weed and you should uh, be good in this area. Well, I wasn't here, but when that happened, if you want to commit murders, yeah, or things, that's fine. So, yeah, Volcano Justice for Justice. <laughs> uh, all right. So, let's get into these mysteries. Yeah. We got 10 more today for 10 you. 10 more. So, we're going to start out. I took my shoes off. You son of a bitch. So now we're on the you same You just have to be field. like me. We're leveled. We're going to start out with a short and sweet one here. This is the 2013 EAS zombie hoax. Oh. It was February 11th. It was 2013. 
And several stations, new uh, radio stations in Montana and Michigan were hijacked with a local area emergency message displaying a warning of a zombie apocalypse. The first of these hijackings took place between 2.30 and 2.33 p.m. It was on TV? This was on KRTV, Channel 2 and 3. Okay. During an airing of the Steve Wilco show. Oh, the bodyguard for uh, Jerry Springer. For Jerry Springer. Okay. Uh, and then it was during a... Uh, so it was for Channel 2, it was during the airing of the Steve Wilco show. For Channel 3, it was during a commercial break. And I feel like people watching the Steve Wilco show would totally buy into this. Oh, yeah. They if started, you're sitting down to watch the Steve Wilco show... You see zombie apocalypse is yeah. happening. You buy in. Uh, so then, uh, not too long after that, PBS affiliates, WMNU, in Marquette, Michigan... And KENW in Portales, New Mexico, they would get the same messages at three at two at yeah three fifty five. So around five hours later, W WBUP 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 they got the same message at eight thirty five alongside KRT V two, which was their second hijacking of the same message. Uh, a similar incident happened in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Uh, apparently they did not edit out the same tones, so the broadcast re- was relayed in a TV station, WKBTDT, that's all of these letters, oh. during its commercial break, triggering the emergency, uh, I don't know what A stands for, emergency announcement system, I'm guessing? Probably, yeah. So the hacker was caught the next day. It was revealed that a backdoor attack allowed the hacker access to the security of the equipment. Uh, this was thanks to poor protection from station equipment, as they have neglected to change their default factory's logins and passwords. Passwords by password, or one two three four. Uh, <laughs> so the message that aired says, "Civil authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living. Follow the messages on screen that will be updated as information becomes available. Do not attempt to approach or apprehend these bodies, as they are considered extremely dangerous." I repeat, civil authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living. Hell yeah. Following the message, follow the messages on screen that will be updated as information becomes available. Do not attempt to approach or apprehend these bodies as they are considered extremely dangerous. This warning applies to all areas receiving this broadcast. Tune in to 920 AM to get updated information in the event that you are separated from your television or the electrical service is interrupted. Civil authorities in your area, again, says that. So, some dude was able to hack this. If you were home, uh-huh. just chilling, watching Steve Wilkos, you know, I, I know you do. Oh, yeah. And you see this message. That bald, beautiful bastard. Now, at first, you're probably going to think, like, what? Like your initial response is probably, what the fuck is this? Yeah, what the fuck? That's my initial response to most things. And then what if you're wrong? Yeah. And you're just like, it's a hoax. Because I'd be like, that's 100% a hoax. And then you start hearing, like, uh, outside, and you're just like, what the fuck is that? I've seen a lot of uh, Walking Dead. I mean, around I'm watching he- Daryl Dixon, so I mean, I think I'd be ready. Around here, we've got, like, people that could be considered basically oh, Walking yeah. Dead. Oh, yeah. They're on bikes a lot of times. So it says the person was caught, so it's not really a mystery. But it's just, yeah. But... Still, that's a fun warning to suddenly see. That's a fun thing to do, I would think, too. I wonder how, why, how much trouble do you think he got into? I think if you hack, like, a, like a you know, that kind of thing, yeah. I think it's pretty serious. Oh. I think it's pretty serious charges. But I wonder how, because, you know, like, there's so many people out there. And I used to be one of the douchey 20-year-olds that would do this. But, like, <laughs> I have a zombie ba- I have a zombie plan. Yeah. You know, like, and there's a lot of people there's that like take a zombie it super survive, serious. Survival yeah. book. And- so I wonder how many people 
in these areas saw this and was like, I knew it. I fucking knew it. And they were. It's probably a bunch of grandmas calling their grandchildren and like. Yeah, from the grave. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Up next is the mystery of Indrid Cold, which we sort of talked about Indrid Cold during our Mothman episode. That sounds familiar. That we did way back. Okay. So this was in 1966. Uh, I wasn't born yet, so I'm off the hook here. You didn't do this one. Nope. Woodrow Derenberger. He was a sewing machine salesman living in Mineral Wells, West Virginia. <gasps> right up the road from What? Me. One November night that year, Darren Berger said he was returning from a business trip to Marietta, Ohio. We know where that's I at. know all we, these we places. We were there today. Yeah, today. Uh, he had to stop to adjust a sewing machine in the back of his truck, like you do. <laughs> Once, How many times have you had to stop? <laughs> mostly, just... I mean daily, really. Yeah. Once he got back on the road, he noticed some lights ahead of him. Thinking the lights were police officers, he stopped, only just to discover that the lights didn't belong to a car, but to what he said was an aircraft that looked like a kerosene lamp chimney. He said he stepped out. He said a man stepped out and approached his truck. He looked perfectly natural and normal as any human being, he told Ronald Maines during an interview on WTAP TV in Parkersburg, That's West where Virginia, we are. the day after the encounter. His face, quote, his face looked like he had a good tan, a deep suntan. He was not too dark. Slow news day. But it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot and had a good. He was really about his tan. Yeah. This man's tan was. Um, I know two things. I know sewing machines and tans. And this man, yeah. if he would have been sewing, I'd have married him. <laughs> he was tanned up. Uh, he said that his hair was combed straight back and it was a dark brown. He seemed like they had a good thick head of hair. He's really, like, I think he was pretty into this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his eyebrows. Had a bulge there in the front of his pants. I went on for days. Had a bulge in the front of my pants. <laughs> it went on for a little, little like an hour. Uh, his eyebrows, his face, his features were very normal. I don't believe that he looked any different from any other man that you would meet on the street. So there was apparently a news story about a man walking up to his truck. Like that's what the news story was. <laughs> he looked like all other men. This guy was like, I was on the road. Yeah. And I saw a light. I saw and then and a man this guy got like out. Other man. And he looked just like a man. <laughs> he looked real like attractive a man. though. He was tan. Oh my god, was he tan? <laughs> Oof. Real nice hair. Full thick head. Look like a hot dog. But he walked up to my truck. Okay, sir, and then what? <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> it. I stared at him, gazed at him longingly. <laughs> Took in real good look at his tan and his hair. As we would buy sewing machine. <laughs> he said no, so I knew it wasn't true love. <laughs> so, Derringer said, you know, he did look like a normal man, but he wasn't a normal man. He had a large grin and kept his arms folded with his hands up under his armpits. Like he was superstar. Yeah. I like to put my hands up under my armpits and I smell them. Superstar. Superstar. I'm 50. <laughs> and even though... Was that a different one? That was a different one. Okay. <laughs> And even though he spoke to Darren Berger, his smile never moved. So he spoke with a smile, apparently. He's tripping on acid or something. He spoke, Darren Berger said, telepathically. Oh. He asked me to roll down the window and on the right-hand side of my truck, and I'd done what he asked. I think all Derringer was in hell too much of them sewing machines. Yeah, you know how they are. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he'd, he'd done what he asked, is what he says. <laughs> and, uh, and then he says, this man stood there, and he first asked me what I was called. And I know he meant my name, and I told him my name. And he asked me, he said, why are you frightened, he said. Don't be frightened. We wish you no harm, he said. We mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And I told him my name. And when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. So it was Darren Berger's and the world's introduction to the entity known as Indrid Cold. 
Naturally, he reported his encounter to the Parkersburg Police. Which again? Why you're mineral wells this from guy, Mariana, and you contact Parkersburg? By the next day, the media frenzy surrounding the story took off. Parkersburg police said, "I mean, if you see him again, I mean, I, I guess, guess let you, us know. I, I don't. Whatever. Even even then, it's just like, yeah, why are you wasting our we time? We don't want to do work." Uh, Darren Berger agreed to be interviewed on live television on WKP. <laughs> of course he did. Oh my a god! Of fucking course, this guy agreed to that. Taking part in the interview were members. You gotta find this tape. <laughs> taking part in the interview were members of the state police, representatives of the Wood County Airport, the Parkersburg Police. Oh my god! They had a fucking news conference. And a representative from the Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, that's where my dad worked. Okay. That's where they say uh, some aliens and shit are there. Well, Andrew Colds apparently. Yeah. That's why they were there. For 30 minutes. Now, why would Dayton? That's like three hours from fucking Parkersburg. That really makes it seem like maybe they are interested in... What the fuck? UFOs. So for 30 minutes, the men peppered Derenberger with questions about the strange encounter. After the interview aired, however, others came forward with claims that they had they also seen... They just couldn't stitch together a story. Because he's a salesman of sewing machines. Oh, I... I Stitched together. That was good. All right. Yeah, that was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> others said, "We've seen that guy too." One rant. One man reported that a man matching Andrew Cold's description tried to flag him down, but he was too afraid to stop. Other people claimed to see lights and fluttering vehicles on the road. Uh, Darren Darrenberger said he talked to Cold on, and several witnesses reported they had seen Darrenberger stopped on the road talking to a man on the same road. For the next three weeks, newspapers in the area ran stories about his claims and the claims of others. News coverage eventually died down, but Cold's visitations continued. Darren Berger reported that he was visited often by the strange grinning man over the next month. Eventually, Darren Berger's family said they too had seen Cold and other strange things. Naturally, the media attention given to the story brought locals to Darren Berger's house, hoping to get a glimpse of Andrew Cold. The attention, as well as the scorn and ridicule you're suffering from, led him to seek medical attention. His physician gave him a clean bill of health and found no evidence of a chemical imbalance or any kind of disruption. So he ended up writing a book about the visits. <laughs> Nothing came from the, anything, though. Uh, it didn't. It didn't just negatively Sounds affect like a him. Great book. I met a man once. <laughs> yep, he smiled at me. Tan, loved him. Uh, it also affected his friends and family as well. The family received years of harassing phone calls and blamed lost jobs and friends on Darren Berger's tales of injured cold. Darren Berger suffered. It's so easy to blame other people. Get the fuck out, all right. Darren Berger suffered from painful headaches and depression, and eventually his wife divorced him because she figured out he was really into dudes. <laughs> yeah. Darren Berger moved away from the area to escape his notoriety. After years of living elsewhere, however, he moved back to Mineral Wells before his death in 1990 at the age of 74, 23 years after Andrew Cold supposedly pulled him over on the highway. While he never recanted his statement, he never spoke of them again. Since then, uh, Andrew Cold has been pushed into the same... Narrative as the Mothman, Richard as like Deere. their oh, <laughs> Richard hamsters or gerbils, whatever gerbils, it was. Yeah, come on. Uh, so yeah, we did talk about him during the Mothman episode. I think at the time there were some more details, and it just kind of sounded like he came up with a story, um, like because he was having an affair. Yeah, I, I remember like us like from the details we were like, oh yeah, this dude was like having an affair, <laughs> and he was just like, I no, I was I was home late because there's this <laughs> guy. This guy stopped me. He was in a spaceship. He you see, <laughs> yeah. And then he was like, well, I gotta go to the news now. Just <laughs> <laughs> going. All right, next up from Dayton. So this one is a lost media uh, 
mystery. Okay. And as in like we laser disc. We're not real sure it ever existed. Not laser disc. Okay. This is the Popeye and Betty Boop sex tape. I'm sorry. What? The Popeye, <laughs> you know, the sailor man. Yeah. And Betty Boop. They eat some spinach first. They had a sex tape. Uh, the, the cartoons. So Popeye the Sailor is a cartoon character. Yeah. Originally created by L.Z. Seeger for the comic strip published by King Pluto, Features. Olive Oil. Titled Thimble Theater. The character is famous for gaining superhuman strength after downing a can of spinach. The comic strip. That was one of the most disappointing things as a kid. I would watch that and I was like, I want spinach. Yeah. And that's all spinach was and what it looked like. And I was like, I don't want spinach. Same here. I tried it. I've had it it since. And uh, Kylie makes a really good spinach. It has no. sautés it with garlic. It it made it 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 good. I mean, yeah. Whatever whatever you mix with it is what you're tasting. So if you just eat spinach, it has no taste whatsoever. That was like, it wasn't spinach from a can. Like, my mom made me spinach from a can, and I, yeah. I wouldn't It's touch all it. wet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So, uh... It's like Betty Boop. The comic strip was adapted into a series of cartoons by Fleischer Studios from 1933 to 1957. Uh, the original Fleischer shorts were distributed by Paramount Pictures and would become a staple in their catalog for many years. However, supposedly, there is a missing pornographic short that was only shown once and never again. According to a 2003 article by Jim Hill, in September of 1938, Max Fleischer, creator of Betty Boop and Popeye, wanted to thank animators who had moved from New York to their new Florida studio. And how would you thank them? By having a welcome to Miami party. According to the animators that attended that inter- or interviewed by Hill, there was a special thank you video shown to the guests with Popeye and, Booty- and Betty Boop. That was fully animated with complete backgrounds, voice actors, a music score, and a stylized Florida landscaping. The video is said to be very humorous, starting with Popeye coming to visit Betty in Miami, where she gives him a, quote, extremely warm welcome. One of the scenes includes Popeye wearing down after an extremely strenuous strenuous session with Betty and eating spinach in a typical Popeye fashion to finish the job. (laughs) After the party, the film was locked in a safe at Fleischer Studios in Florida, never publicly being seen again, and only being shown to the special guests of Fleischer. In 1942, the Fleischer brothers were kicked out of their studio by Paramount executives, and ultimately, the one reel short had vanished. In 2003, when the information was discovered, a Toon Zone forum appeared and sparked interest in the short. Some users have claimed they had seen the short in animated pornography tapes in the 80s. It is unknown what happened to the film, and it's unknown where Jim Hill found the information in question. But like you said, that's the way you are going to greet? (laughs) Here's a couple cartoon characters really going at it. There's a lot of lost media, though. There's, uh, like, apparently there's an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants that they made where, like, all of the voice cast were just, like, goofing off. And just cussing. Oh, wow. Like, just replacing their lines and just being like, you know, fuck yeah. you, Patrick, and stuff. <laughs> and, like, they did the whole episode like that, and it's never been seen. God damn it, SpongeBob. All right. So now, next up, we are going to talk about cereal poopers. Oh. Not, like, breakfast cereal poopers. Yeah. But, you know, cereal poopers. I mean, they I, do it a lot. I'm... And this is a twofer. Hey, if that's against the law, then lock me up. <laughs> oh, well, I'll call the police now. They won't do anything. <laughs> they won't do anything. This is going to be a twofer. All right. So A two for twofer? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like poop is called number two. You got it. Okay. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So this is part four and five. 
No, well, this oh. I'm clueing this is one entry. Okay, but it's a two first. So this is a bonus. Okay. So starting in May, in the first part of this, starting in May 2012, residents of the Kenmore neighborhood in Akron, Ohio, found feces on or in their cars. If the cars were locked, the perpetrator would defecate on the hood, windshield, gas tank, covering, uh, mirrors, windows, or handles of the car. However, if the cars were unlocked, the predator would defecate on the interior of the car. You're getting a new car. You You're can't kidding. fucking. Yeah. Oh my yeah, if it's God. in your car. Yeah. Yeah, new car time. Yeah. It's, in total, 19 people reported finding fecal matter what? on their car. But I wondered one of those things where, like, uh,. Like, one or two were the victim, but he's had to shit in everyone's car just so, like, they wouldn't... So they wouldn't... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they, oh, yeah. They did you, sometimes with, like, killings and stuff. That way doesn't look like a target? Serial killers, yeah. Like, they they, like they really only want to kill one person, two people, but they kill more just to throw... Throw the, everybody off. Maybe. Off the scent, wink. <laughs> off that shit stink. So 19 people reported this. Lieutenant Rick Edwards of the Akron Police Department believes there are more victims. He says, this shit's getting out of hand. shit's crazy. <laughs> on March 10th, 2015, the face of the perpetrator was caught on a hidden camera set up by the man. The man was the father of a woman whose car was targeted by the perpetrator seven times. Oh, so, yeah, oh, seems like there was a specific target. After you want to go out with me? I'll teach you. <laughs> I'll teach you. Shit on these walls, Ray. <laughs> After the man was tired of these incidents, he set up a hidden camera, which took a photo of every 12 seconds. The photo was released to the public by the Beacon Journal on March 11, 2015. You know this shitter. The perpetrator was estimated to be in his mid-40s when the photo was taken. Oh, mid-40s. So, okay. there's also a little... I'm going to be a young person's game. I'm not going to go over each of these, but I've got, like, uh, descriptions of the vehicles and uh, where the, where the uh, poop was found. But there is a little bit of a pattern. So... There are one, two, three, three different Toyota Celicas. There are one, two, two different Mitsubishi Galants. Uh, two different Chevy Cavaliers. And then a Camaro, which the Camaro seems like he's like, you, you rich fuck. Yeah. But yeah, like, so he kind of had like. It would be easier because the hood would be lowered to the ground. You could probably just. He seemed like he kind of had a. Uh, a specific type of car, like cars that he also, like this, mm -hmm. these, you know, they were repeats. So the man became known as the Bow Movement Bandit. The identity, the BMB. the BMB, the identity of the BMB is still unknown, but there are two main theories. The first theory is the, that the perpetrator was a homeless person. The other theory is that the perpetrator was David Ware, a 56-year-old Akron firefighter. This, this, and now we jump here, who murdered his wife and then killed himself. Oh. On March 11, 2015. Oh, he escalated. He heavily resembled the photograph of the perpetrator and committed the murder-suicide on the same day that his photo was first published by the Beacon Journal. Oh. So. And the wife knew, so she had to go. Good chance there. Huh. And he couldn't live with the shame of being the, the <laughs> bowel movement bandit. He's like, worst fucking nickname ever. Yeah. All right, and now we're going to talk about the mad pooper. Oh. Uh. Kathy Budd says the defecations begin in mid-July 2017 outside their house near Steamy the... Steamy poops in the summer. <laughs> Steamy poops. Near outside their house near the intersection of Briargate Boulevard and North Union Parkway in the northern end of Colorado Springs, Colorado. As she later told local new TV station KKTV, real close to being dangerous there, <laughs> her children came in one day and told her, there's a lady taking a poop. 
Bud was not sure they were serious and went outside to see for herself. You shitting me? You shitting me? There she saw the woman squatting with her jogging shorts around her ankles. When Bud confronted the woman about having defecated in public and allowing her children to see her private parts in the process, the woman said, yeah, sorry, and left after pulling up her shorts. Didn't wipe. No time for wiping. Bud assumed she would return quickly to clean up the feces and never again jog in the area due to the embarrassment. Instead, she found feces at the same spot on the sidewalk at least once a week. <laughs> Paper napkins and wipes the jogger had used to clean herself uh, were often nearby. On three occasions, Bud saw the woman defecate. The Bud children began calling her the Mad Pooper of Pine Creek. <laughs> After a stream that follows that flows through the neighborhood. Oh, there's a stream that flows. <laughs> Bud notified the Colorado Springs Police Department and made attempts on her own to end the jogger's defecations. She took pictures from the house, capturing a short brown-haired woman in a gray tank top and shorts. She put up a printed paper sign at the place near her house, favored by the jogger, warning her that the police were aware of the situation and asking her to stop. Please stop pooping. I don't walk in your toilet, so please don't poop on my sidewalk. Please stop pooping on my sidewalk. In response, Bud said, the woman began changing the time she jogged by. She also ignored the notes, please. Crazy how that didn't stop her. Maybe she couldn't read. Running by it, put like a, a shit emoji with like the circle of the line <laughs> yeah, it through it. Yeah. Running by it fifteen times in one day before defecating near it again. So now she was just shitting near the side. <laughs> <laughs> the police have said she should she could face charges of indecent exposure and public defecation were they ever to identify and arrest her. Charges that, in the event of a conviction, might require that she register as a sex offender. Whoa. Sex offender, not defender, yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One officer, Lieutenant Howard Black, said he had never seen anything similar in his 35-year career in Colorado Springs. Like Bud, he admitted to the post that it was amusing, but allowed for the possibility that the jogger might not be in full control of her actions. If it's a mental health issue, she'll be held accountable, but we want to get her help. In September, two months after the jogger's defecation had begun, Bud went to KKTV, which reported on the story. Shortly afterwards, the Post wrote its article about it, and the story went viral. Through its Twitter account, Procter & Gamble made an offer to the jogger. If she turned herself into the police, they would give her a year's supply of the company's Charmin toilet paper for free. Wow. I think she needs the pens more than anything. Runner's World ran a story about it, asking her to please stop. <laughs> Uh, sports news website Deadspin called the Colorado Springs Police Department about the case so frequently the department asked them to stop. <laughs> they just really wanted updates. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it it went on. The woman has never been identified. Uh, people wonder if she has maybe Crohn's disease and just can't help it. But why, like in that <laughs> why the exact same spot? person every time? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, some other. By the way, there's other notable serial poopers, uh, including the Portland pooper. The Lincoln Pooper, the Brisbane Poo Jogger, apparently jogging and pooping is like yeah. a thing. The New Jersey Pooper Intendant, who turned out to be Kenilworth Public School Superintendent Tra- uh, Thomas Tramaglini. He was arrested and charged with lewdness, littering, and public defecation after he was caught defecating on the, on the track at the school. Uh, he was dubbed the Pooper Intendant by media and pled guilty to the charge of open would, defecation. Like, stand there and wait for someone to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> the Pooper Intendant strikes Yes. Me. When I worked at Bob Evans, we had a busboy who was always drunk, and the manager caught him out pooping out the dumpsters. Oh. Like, we had bathrooms. Right. Like, good. But he was, like, out the dumpster for a while taking the trash out. 
Remember, we'd take the trash out and smoke weed. This guy decided to take the trash out and take a dump. Gotta he was get, fired. You gotta go? He was fired. I remember when I worked at the theater, all the time, there was shit everywhere in the women's bathrooms. And I don't know if it was, like, adult women doing this yeah. or, like, babies, you know, because they, they would take them in there to... I don't know what it was, but I just always... It's not that hard to poop. Women's bathrooms always have shit all over them in the theater. <laughs> Okay, uh, last one before the break here is going to be about a man named David Chase. On October 15th, 1995, private investigator Phil Harris heard a disembodied voice after he fell asleep in his easy chair. The voice said, quote, I'm David Chase. I was murdered. I want you to investigate my murder. Go buy the Sunday paper. It seemed crazy, but Phil searched the morning paper for any mention of a David Chase According to his friend Janet, he told her, A strange thing happened. A voice came to me about four this morning as I was sitting here studying. The voice told me his name and said that I need to look in the paper. That motherfucker drunk. (laughs) So David Chase was a local cabinet maker who had drowned four months earlier. His wife was convinced he had been murdered, though. Phil Harris believed that for some reason. Phil Harris believed that for some reason he had been chosen to solve the case. When he met with David's widow, Judy Chase, Judy said she was skeptical until Phil began to talk about things only David could have known. Uh, Quote, there were a lot of very personal details about my relationship with David that nobody else knew. About our life together, our love for one another, pet names that David called me. He called me Honey Bunny and Shuggies, things like that. There's no way that Phil Harris could have known that. Get over here, sugar tits. (laughs) Phil and Judy struck an unusual deal. For $1, Phil agreed to investigate the case until it was solved. <laughs> Look, I can't do it for free. Yeah, okay? I got to get something out of yeah. this. David, said, David and Judy... People might think that, you know, I'm not doing it on the up and up, so I mean, just give me a dollar. <laughs> David and Judy Chase had lived in Evergreen, Colorado for 18 months. They had no children, but were planning to adopt two foster kids who were living with them. On June 6, 1995, David was scheduled to work with a local handyman named Matt or a Hosky, they needed to finish a roofing job and clear away brush from the local Elks Club. By noon, the work was done. The two men went to lunch, then stopped at the bank. David cashed a check for $1,800. Dang, not bad for a day's work. Half a day. Then he and Matt went to a local bar. Hell yeah. Judy was concerned when David didn't come home that night, and by the next morning, she knew something was wrong. She immediately drove to Matt's house. Matt told her he had left David at the bar shooting pool. Later that morning, Judy claimed Matt's girlfriend caught her. Quote, she said he had told her when she asked about David that David had said, oh, I'm just going for a swim. I've got a raft. I found this completely bewildering. I mean, my husband was a very experienced mountain climber and had studied hypothermia and knew full well the dangers of jumping into a snow-fed river. So the story, had a raft. He had a raft, though. So, yeah. so the story was absolutely completely impossible for me to believe. Uh, the Bear Creek River runs right by the bar where David and Matt were last seen together. By this time, Judy didn't believe anything Matt had to say, so she went to the police. When Sergeant Brian Scott of the Sheriff's Department questioned Matt, he told the same story he had told his girlfriend. Quote, Matt has told us that he and David had been drinking most of the day, and then after they did that, they went out into the parking lot and unloaded these tree limbs from Matt's truck into Bear Creek. As they finished unloading, Matt told us that David jumped into the river and said, Pick me up in Morrison. Six weeks later, David's body was found in the Bear Creek River, three miles downstream from where he was last seen. The autopsy supported Matt's story. The coroner ruled that the cause of death was consistent with drowning. But Judy said some of the coroner's findings made her suspicious. 
For instance, even though Matt claimed they'd been drinking all day, the autopsy didn't show that David was drunk at the time of death. Sergeant Scott said David's neck was broken, and there were unusual cuts on both of his legs. Oh. So that kind of throws out the, the drown, like the drowning yeah. being the cause of death. I mean, the cuts could be if you like, got caught up in some branches yeah. or something. And broken neck, money though, on him. Broken a, neck's a little... Yeah. His clothes were evidently ripped from his body. He had partial clothing around his legs from his pants, and his shoes and socks were still intact, but the rest of his clothes were missing. Uh, Matt's girlfriend, Judy, suspected foul play. There was no way David's blue jeans would come off, no matter how long he'd been in that water, because he tucked them in his boots, and the only way to get those jeans off would be to cut them off. Police questioned Which Matt... Be by the cuts on the leg. Right. Police questioned Matt again. This time he changed two important details in his story. He now said that he and David left the bar and drove down the street to dump the brush from the job. He also said that David fell into the river, didn't jump. Oh. If it was really an accident, Judy wondered why Matt didn't try to help him, you know, or yeah. get help. Yeah, he's like, all right, I'm going to go home. There was a fire station right there next door. So uh, it was three months later that Phil Harris contacted Judy to say that David had been speaking to him from beyond the grave. Uh, Phil said that the voice gave him details about what happened the day David disappeared. These are the exact words that he was told by David. Quote, before I deposited the check for $1,800, he talked me into cashing it and keeping the money in my pocket under the guise of possibly buying a decent truck from him. From him. I had second thoughts about buying a truck from Matt, and I told him, that as we were leaving the, told him that as we were leaving the bar. Matt was furious with me and at the time, but I didn't realize it. As soon as we got back to his truck, he started to tell me that I had promised him this money, and therefore it was his. Matt shoved me in the chest, I shoved him back, and he hit me in the face. I immediately hit him back, and all of a sudden he started bleeding very hard from the nose. This made him extremely mad, and he flew into me. I went down very, very near the edge of the water. In fact, we were up against the small retaining wall, fighting on the ground. We rolled around and tried to punch each other, and I feel Matt got in a couple of good punches. I only remember, remember hitting him. Yeah, I only remember him hitting me in the back of the neck with a hard object. I don't know what he hit me with, but it broke my neck. Probably branch or something, but they had on branches. So Phil went on to say that Matt had an accomplice who helped him get rid of the body in the bloody clothes. Phil said that David's voice told him the cuts on his legs came from a knife belonging to the accomplice. Quote, the knife that was used to cut my clothing off belonged to the other person. You were right, Phil, about the cuts on my legs. This is where Matt cut my clothes off rather than take my boots off. On June 7th, 1996, exactly a year and a day after David's death, Phil took Judy to the local reservoir he pointed out the area where he believed the murder weapon and the bloody clothes had been dumped. Uh, Phil says that David told him about the murder weapon. He told him where it was thrown. A week later, Phil died of a massive heart attack, leaving Judy to carry on their investigation Judy alone. Judy dollar? <laughs> uh, Sergeant Scott said more evidence would be needed before an arrest could be made, that obviously if they're going to develop a criminal case, they have to have something they could present in court. And in order to do that, you have to have evidence that you can put your hands on or witnesses that you can talk to. So the information that Phil Harris was presenting, although not discounted, needs to be corroborated through some other sources. Matt had been de had declined to be interviewed for the for various articles and news stories. Uh, it's important to remember that he's not actually been charged with all of anything. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the Phil guy seems like he knew some details that yeah. he probably shouldn't know. So who knows? Where they, he would contact a complete stranger. It does sound like he was probably murdered, though. Yeah. I mean, a broken neck. So, I, the drowning, I mean, you know, he gets drunk, falls in. That's one, wasn't drunk, but he wasn't drunk, yeah, so. Yeah, 
All right, so that we're gonna. <clears throat> so we're gonna take a quick break, and let you hear from our newest friends out there in the podcasting world. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Jen. And we're the hosts of Bandcamp, a comedy podcast where we read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. This season, we're reading The Outsiders, one chapter at a time, out loud, so you don't have to. If you enjoy funny, smart talk, or kind of smart talk anyway, about banned books and the stupid reason some people want to ban them, as well as listening to us read a classic book, search for Bandcamp on your favorite podcast player, and that's banned with two N's. And we're back. Uh, we're really excited to have the opportunity to introduce our listeners to Dan and Jen and their podcast, Bandcamp. Uh, I've been listening to the first season over the last few weeks, couple of weeks, and I really like what they're doing over there. Two ends. Two ends in Bandcamp. Uh, season one features To Kill a Mockingbird. Season two covers Fahrenheit 451. And they are currently reading through The Outsiders during season three of their show. So, on the topic of banned books, if you could ban any book... What book would you ban? Oh, wow. I don't know, man. I don't really... The Bible? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That'd be my People seem to be using the Bible for a lot of bad stuff more than good stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm completely against banning books. Uh, But yeah, there's tons of books that have been banned for for random reasons throughout time. Uh, But yeah, I really like their show. Uh, They read through the book. Like, I don't understand why you would band to kill a mockingbird it's about justice and yeah how like this race and there's we can't talk about that stuff though there's so many crazy reasons why but yeah they do a good job like they uh they read through the book and then they kind of try to figure out like you know why it was banned and like they, yeah so banned, i i dig what they're doing and especially right now with all the like you know public schools and stuff or books Seuss are being books banned left and right banned. yeah okay so back to this uh, we're going to talk about the mystery of the Watcher. Remember that movie with Keanu Reeves? I don't think the I've Watcher. Watched, I don't think I've watched it. it. Came out like early 2000s. Watched kind it. Kind of a horror movie. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So in June of 2014, Derek and Maria Brodus, along with their three children, purchased a beautiful house in Westfield, New Jersey. Uh, Westfield, New Jersey. It was Born a one million dollar home. Whoa! In one of the safest neighborhoods in the state. In fact, the town was recently named one of the best places to live in America. After years of hard Obviously, work... Obviously, they've never been to Parkersburg. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. After years of hard work and dedication, the family would finally be able to experience the wondrous community of Westfield for themselves, or so they thought. Three days after closing the deal on their new home, a strange letter appeared in their mailbox. It was addressed to, quote, the new owner, and welcomed the family to 657 Boulevard. Yet, as Derek read further, the letter turned from kind to bizarre. Quote, this is what the letter says, 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why, Why are you here? I will find out. It went on to identify the Brodus family's minivan, renovation plans, and even details about the children. The only identifying factor from the suspect was the signature towards the bottom. It read, The Watcher. Upon receiving the letter, Derek immediately alerted the authorities. As the police department opened an investigation in the matter, he decided to contact the previous owners of 657 Boulevard, 
ask them, hey, has this happened before? Is this somebody we should, like, you know, be worried, be worried about? Hey, seriously. Uh, interestingly enough, the Woods family had received a similar letter several days before moving out. It, too, mentioned a family watching the house from afar. However, it was the first time they'd encountered such a letter in their 23 years of living there. Hmm. As a result, the Woods family disposed of the letter and disregarded its contents. For two weeks, the Brodus family remained on high alert. Maria and the children stayed in their previous home while Derek canceled business trips and surveyed the house. Renovations continued, along with strange occurrences, like signs torn from the yard. Eventually, Maria returned to the house to evaluate paint samples and collect the mail. The letter addressed the homeowners by name, by name this time, noting changes made to the house. The revelation that New, Jersey, West, New Jersey's Westfield watcher was close enough to hear Maria and Derek's names led to some paranoia. Worse yet, the letter listed the children by birth date and a nickname. Oh. It inquired about one particular child who often painted on the porch. Is she the artist in the family, the letter asked? All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been control, have been in control of this house for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. Understandably, the Brodus family stopped returning to the house. <laughs> Instead, they remained in their old house as investigations continued. Derek sought the help of a former FBI agent and a security firm to reveal the author's for identity. one dollar. <laughs> yeah, Phil showed up again. <laughs> However, despite numerous attempts using forensics, criminal profiling, interviews, the case is yet to be solved. Six months after purchasing the house, the Brodus family decided to sell the property. Unfortunately, given the rumors about the letters, every offer fell through. During this time, speculation circulated about the case. Was it the next-door neighbors who had a perfect view of the home and purchased the lot during the time frame the watcher mentioned? Could it have been a nearby couple whom police noted played a video game featuring a watcher character? Or perhaps, was it the Brodus family themselves? With little evidence and limited suspects, each, led, each lead was quickly struck down. In 2016, to put the matter to rest, the Brodus family proposed to tear down and rebuild the house. While this might have prompted some relief for many neighbors, it spurred frustration in the Watcher. Several days later, a final letter appeared, much more threatening than the last. The Watcher vowed to punish the family should they go through with their plan. Quote, maybe a car accident, maybe a fire... Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. Basically anything. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. The house finally... There was nobody behind them. The house finally sold in 2019, losing roughly half a million dollars in value. Due to the unpredictable nature of the letters, the Brodus family was willing to was willing to risk the financial strain. Safety far superseded their ties to the property. As they had a part of the house, so too did any answers concerning who was behind the letters. So, yeah, initially I thought this was just this family, uh, like maybe regretting that yeah. they had paid a million dollars for this house and thought, like, this would be a way for them to... Recoup that money. Yeah. But they sold it for half cost. So they, But maybe that was because they just couldn't, like, it didn't. their plan didn't work to get, yeah. you know... But then, like, I feel like this would be an easy case of for the police to go to every neighbor. And maybe they did this and it just wasn't in here. But, like, go to every neighbor and have them write the same letter. Yeah. And then do, like, a handwriting sample. Analysis. Analysis. That's yeah. a lot of work, though. That is a lot of work. So, you I know. I mean, if you're out there and you want to send in your handwriting, <laughs> you 
you can do it. Whatever I guess. you want, I guess. Whatever. We might look at it. We're gonna need more than a dollar. Yeah. Just yeah. Okay. So this next one is maybe just... whoever bought the house that was their plan. Just someone wanted to buy it. They lost out to this family, so they did this until they sold it and they got it for half cost. Or that. Real, real to market, man. It's, I mean, with the Woods family getting one as they were moving out, it also made me yeah. think that it was the same, the family, the Brodus family. Like, they were trying to set up, like, an initial... Oh, no, it happened to them, too. So, this one, this next story is mostly just about a con man. And it's just an interesting story, and I feel like this should be a movie. Alright. Uh, it's about a man named L.W. Wright. Uh, and all we know about this man is from this one event. Uh, so, uh, let me see, um, what are you doing over there? Oh. So, the facts of the strange event are known from testimony of those who encountered it, L.W. Wright. It was the year 1982, two weeks before the Winston 500 race at the Talladega Super Speedway in Alabama, in the United States. Dick when, Trickle win that one? Oh, I love Dick Trickle. Man, I, I enjoy a good Old Dick, Dick Trickle. Old Dick Trickle. I enjoy a good Dick Trickle. Me too. Uh, Ber- Bernie, Ter- Bernie Terrell was approached by a stranger. Terrell was the head of a marketing firm, and the stranger asked Bernie for money to sponsor his ride in the upcoming race. He claimed he was an experienced NASCAR driver, part of a racing team named Music City Racing. This bluff worked, and Terrell offered him the money he needed for buying a car and hiring a team. The stranger, who said his name was L.W. Wright, was given $7,500 to cover the expenses for the race weekend, as well as more money to purchase a car, a truck, and a trailer for the race. Wow. He was just handing out money. Yeah. L.W. Wright then approached Sterling Marlin, a driver who had yet to break into NASCAR at the time, to purchase a race car. Sterling was doubting the intentions of Wright, but sold him a car for $17,000 in cash, with a $3,000, $3,700 check covering the remaining cost. Whether out of doubtfulness or eagerness, Sterling Martin wanted to serve Wright as his racing crew chief. Wright agreed and signed him on for the race weekend. Wright then, a call, then called a Nashville, Tennessee newspaper reporter named Larry Woody to promote his race. Wright told the reporter that he was about to enter the Talladega race for his team named Music City Motorsports. He said that his car was sponsored by the country music stars T.G. Shepard and Merle Haggard, but after the story was published, the attorney of T.G. Shepard called Woody and told him that Shepard is not sponsoring Wright. The attorney, attorney also said that he never heard of L.W. Wright. Yeah. Woody called Wright to question the story. Uh, Wright's response was that sponsoring decision was premature. And he also admitted that he didn't race in any Grand National Series, but had taken part in lower series races. And I've seen a car once. I looked at a car once. Yeah. Thought about getting in it. Got a little scared. I'm going to race him. The next problem for Wright was to get a hold of a license, which is essential for competing in the NASCAR race. There are so many obvious reasons that he should not have been able to get this license, <laughs> but he walked into the office responsible for issuing those. Confidence, man. You have confidence, you can get some shit. And he convinced the officials about his racing history, somehow without providing any evidence of this. Well, before the internet, they couldn't look it up. Or any ability. He's he like, w- Google it. And they're like, what do you mean What are you Google talking it? about? There is no Google. That explains this one. He was yeah. a time traveler. <laughs> As the cars lined up on May 2nd, 1982, he was at the back of the, of, the, of the cars. Despite a crash during practice, he had managed to qualify in 36th place of the 40 drivers that raced that day, including famous names like Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty. NASCAR drivers race at extremely high speeds. 
Uh, so you have you. I'll be pretty bored if they went really. Slow. You really do need to be like an experienced. You can't, yeah, you know. Yeah. So uh, for him to be inexperienced is super dangerous for not only himself but for other drivers. Uh, so he started out, you know, he started out 36th. He was slower than every other car around him. He dropped to 39th before he was ordered to finish his race after 13 laps for driving too slow. Uh, and that's pretty much all we know about this guy. He dis- As soon as that happened, he disappeared from the Talladega Super Speedway, left his car behind, and just left. Yeah. Uh, he was never confronted for any of his actions or was never apprehended. He didn't even give a single interview about his race. He just walked away from the car and was never seen again. He wasn't try it. I feel like that is definitely like needs to be a, like Andy Samberg in a hot rod style. Like he just like that's hot rod sequel. Yeah. He decides he's going to race in NASCAR just to, just to prove he can do it. Bluffs his way in, gets scared, it's too slow, and just runs away. All right. So next up is the mysterious Mount Asahidaka Asahidaki SOS incident on the afternoon of. July 24, 1989, on the path from Mount Kuradaki to Mount Asahidaki of Daisusen National right. Park, two Tokyo men were lost after uh, mountain like mountain climbing. While going through the climbing route, they deviated down Mount Asahidaki south towards the these words <laughs> Shubit Shugawa Shugawa River the Hokkaido Hokkaido police searched in a helicopter and ended up finding a giant SOS sign made of 19 birch trees each roughly 5 meters long it was built by stacking cut down birch trees uh, the two missing people were soon safely rescued 2 to 3 miles north or kilometers north from the sign the police believe that the SOS letters made of wood were also made by the two people they had rescued. Yeah. Makes sense. Be sure. However, when the police briefed the two people about the situation after the rescue, they did not know anything about that sign. Like, good thing with that sign. They're like, what? <laughs> what? We didn't do that. So the police now uh, think there's another victim. They dispatch a helicopter again on the following day and search the surrounding area. They then discovered fragments of human bones with traces of animal bites, and some bones were broken, possibly while the person was alive. In a separate area near the SOS sign, the police discovered a hole just large enough to fit a single human, which included four cassette tapes, a tape recorder, a backpack, some amulets, a human skull, a tripod, a pair of men's basketball shorts, two cameras, a notebook, and the driver's license of Kenji Iwamura. A 25-year-old male office worker uh, who had gone missing on July 10th, 84, after he set out hiking. When he failed to appear for a work week later, his parents asked police to search for him, but they found no trace. To date, he was missing for over 35 years and believed to be deceased. The human bones were sent to the medical university, university and were identified initially of those of a woman aged 20 to 40 years. On the 27th of July, the police decided to play the recordings on the cassette tapes. On one of the recordings, the voice of a young man is heard shouting for 2 minutes and 17 seconds. A translation of the man shouting on the recording is as follows. SOS, help me, I can't move on the cliff. SOS, help me. The place is where I first met the helicopter. The bamboo plant is deep and you can't go up. Lift me from here. The rest of the tapes included music from anime TV shows. In addition, a cutout of artwork of an anime magical princess, Minky Momo, 
was used as a case for the cassette tapes. Uh, an acquaintance of the missing man gave testimony that he'd been carrying a recording of the theme songs on tape, as well as the he wears the same size of basketball shoes that were discovered. Uh, the other hand, since the human skeleton was initially identified as a female, it was thought to investigators that there were two men and a woman that had gone missing at the park. However, there was no rec- record of the missing female, uh, and the missing man was said to have gone alone onto the mountain. So the identity of the woman and the potential relationship with this guy is unknown. Uh, so they don't know, like, crazy circumstances here where two guys get, you know, lost. Yeah. They see an SOS sign, rescue these two guys, thinking it's they made the whatever. Then that's not them. So they go back. They find human remains that they think is whoever made the sign. It's a female. And there's another guy that's out there somewhere. So I don't know if this guy killed the female, put her body in this hole, and then he ended up getting lost. Like and he made the SOS. He was trying to climb back, you know. Yeah. Yeah, his anime music with him. And you know how old anime nerds are. He does his theme music. That was his theme music. Uh, all right. Uh, second to last mystery here for this episode is are the unsolved three X murders. 3X? 3X. Okay. XXX. Alright. Triple X. Yeah. Vin, Vin Diesel, Diesel, baby. <laughs> Did you know that him and Paul Walker got into like a fight? And that's what we heard. Well, we heard it, all it about was Paul's brother. Oh, Paul's after brother. Paul passed away because Vin said Paul didn't walk like that. And the brother said, Don't tell me how my brother walked. And they got into a fight. We heard some celebrity gossip today yeah, at, the, the, flea at the flea market. market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some very confident uh, celebrity gossip. Yeah, yeah. So on June 11, 1930. Joseph Mazinski and Catherine May were sitting together in a parked car. It's gonna be May. In a parked car in Whitestone, Queens, New York. Uh, May said a man approached the vehicle, shot Mazinski dead, and handed her a note. Was he smiling? <laughs> was it injured cold? Yeah. How, note, was, how was his tan? Uh, and then told her to not read the note until the following day. The man then walked May to a bus stop and left her there unharmed. Uh. She did not immediately report the murder. Instead, she waited until authorities contacted her about the coat she left inside Mazinski's car. When confronted, May gave police the note she received from the shooter. The note simply said, Joseph Mazinski, 3X, 3X097. When questioned by police, May told a number of conflicting stories about the incident, including the involvement of an Italian gangster named Albert Lombardo. When questioned more in depth about Lombardo and his part in the murder, May confessed the story was fabricated. Although her accounts of the shooting were questionable, May was not considered a suspect, which hmm. is weird. Yeah. Within days of discovering Mazinski's body, authorities received a clue in the form of a letter sent to a local newspaper. The sender of the letter, who identified themselves as Mazinski, Mazinski's killer, said the victim was a rascal and a dirty little rat. Oh. Yeah, see? He's a dirty little yeah. rat, see? They, I couldn't just forget about it. <laughs> they also warned 14 more of Mazinski's friends will join him. Ooh. Authorities do not have any solid Could leads you in the case. 14, 14 that's a oh lot. I don't want that many no. friends. Uh, they do not have any solid leads in the Maybe case. Maybe he, he had four teenage friends. Maybe. Four of his teen friends were going to. 14. Four yeah. teen more of. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. So they didn't have any leads until another man was killed under sur- some similar circumstances. On June 16, 1930, uh, Nick Sowley and Elizabeth Ring were sitting in a parked car near Creedmoor, Queens, New York. 
Uh, Ring said a man approached the car and asked Sally for his driver's license. He then said, you're the guy we want, all right. You're going to get what Joe got. After shooting Sally dead, the killer escorted Ring to a bus stop, gave her a handwritten note, and vanished without further incident. The following day, a local newspaper received another letter from someone who identified themselves as the shooter. The note said, 13 more men and one woman will go. Five days after Nick Sally's murder, Joseph Mazinski's brother received a letter in which the writer threatened to kill him if he did not return, quote, those papers. Hmm. Uh, the authorities received a letter shortly after stating, quote, the mission has ended and that, quote, there's no further cause of worry. According to the letter, the killer was an agent in an organization called the Red Diamond of Russia. He claimed Joseph Mazinski and Nick Sally were former agents in the same organization. However, they reportedly turned against the Red Diamond of Russia and stole a number of important documents when they left. As the documents were reportedly returned, the killer said 3X is no more. Although the murder stopped abruptly, the threatening letters continued for several years and the murders were never solved. Threatening letters, which were signed by 3X, were sent to various people in the years after the murder stopped. However, authorities were unable to determine whether they were sent by the original killer. Queensboro President George Harvey received a series of threatening phone calls from someone claiming to be 3X... However, the threatening call stopped after one week and Harvey was never harmed. In 1930, a fingerprint expert named Aaron Blattman, who worked for the courts, was arrested for making harassing phone calls to the police department. During the calls, he promised to reveal the identity of the 3X killer if the police offered him a cash reward. However, he wants $1. Yeah. However, he never provided any useful information and he was eventually ruled out as a suspect. Suspect. Six years later, another man was arrested after he confessed to killing Sally and Mozinski. However, he did not fit the description that May and Ring had provided to police. He was later determined to be mentally ill. Although authorities have never identified the killer, they believe he may have been an escapee from the Creedmoor Asylum, which was close to the scene of Sally's murder. Authorities have never verified the existence of the Red Diamond of Russia organization. <laughs> of course not. They don't yeah. want you to know they exist. Yeah, that's the, that's the whole point. That's why I wanted the papers back. I feel like I'm living in a similar situation right now. Certain things happening uh -huh. where they, there's apparently big investigations and organizations and cover-ups. Cover-ups. Yeah. yeah. So if anything happens to me, Deep guys. Deep state. So last on the list for today is the man who made it rain. Don Decker of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Dollar Bill Don. Dollar, the strip club. Dollar, dollar Bill Don Decker. Quadruple D. <laughs> uh... <clears throat> he claims that for a brief period of time, he was able to materialize rain out of thin air. He, was, he suspects that he was a victim of some sort of demonic possession. His bizarre experience began in February of 1983, shortly after the death of his grandfather, 63-year-old James Kishog. On February 24, 1983, James's funeral was held in Stroudsburg. He had died of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, Don Decker, then 21, had been granted a furlough from the county jail to attend it. He was serving a 4- to 12-month sentence for receiving stolen, pro stolen property. Uh, Don says that James, the man he was obliged to publicly mourn, had abused him physically from the, uh, from the time he was 7 years old. No other part of the family knew about this. He says it was like good fighting evil. He felt that with James's death, the evil was gone, and that everyone th everything would change. In fact, things would change, and drastically, but not in the way Don could have ever imagined. 
After the funeral, he was completely unnerved by the way his parents glorified James's memory. He decided he decided to spend the night off. To spend yeah, he decided to spend the night of Friday, February twenty fifth, with his friends Bob and Jeannie Kiefer, whom he had met a few months later, earlier. So if you get furloughed from like jail, uh huh, like you're not just going to a specific event and then going back to jail. You're just kind of like you're out of jail. Yeah, I thought furloughed means you had to go like back that to... day. So, so I would have thought after the funeral he would have went back to jail. But yeah. apparently, no, you're cool. No, you can stay with your it. friends. Take a couple days. So it was at the Kiefer's home that all the unfeeling, easy, all the uneasy feelings stirred up at James's funeral came back to haunt Don. He says that while he was in the upstairs bathroom getting ready for dinner, he suddenly felt strange and confused. He says it felt as though the air had gone out of the room and he was standing in a vacuum. He then fell to the floor and had a vision of an old man laughing and wearing a crown in the bathroom window. Deep scratches suddenly appeared on his wrist. Whoa. When Don and the Kiefer sat down for dinner, they noticed the scratches and asked Don about them. He told them about the vision and claimed that the wounds were caused by, quote, something upstairs. Shortly after dinner, he and Bob went into the living room. Suddenly, the air around Don vibrated with a deep chill. The, Kiefer, the Kiefer's heard a loud noise from above. Almost simultaneously, water began to drip down the living room walls. Don fell into an eerie, trance-like state. Bob asked Jeannie if she had water running upstairs. She said no. Bob had Jeannie come into the room and look at the water. He wondered if they had a leak, but he had no idea where it would be coming from. At a total loss, they decided to notify the landlord, Ron Van Wy. As Bob called Ron, Jeannie grabbed some pots and pans and put them under the water that was dripping from the ceiling. Don remained in a trance-like stare, trance-like state. Bob told Ron that they had a problem and needed him to come down. Ron asked what the problem was, but Bob said he couldn't say it this time. But he insisted that Ron get there right away. So when Ron when Ron ar- arrived, I don't think I would be like, "No, you have to tell me." What yeah, I'm no. What do you want from me? Like, not- <laughs> uh, at first, he thought something was wrong with the plumbing, but then he remembered that there were no pipes in the front end of the house. So he and Bob went upstairs and checked the bathroom. No leaks were found. After watching the water for a while, Ron discovered that it was not only coming down from the ceiling, it was also coming sideways from the wall and up from the floor. We had big old fat raindrops. Which water shouldn't do that. Sideways raindrops. Upflow raindrops. There was no basic direction that it was coming from. It was also discovered that when the water struck them, it produced an oily smudge. Ron caught his wife and a police officer. The police officer did not know what to make of the strange scene inside the Kiefer house. He brought in his partner uh, and told him, hey, go walk like, walk in there. Yeah. Uh, and that officer said, I ain't going in there until you explain to me what's going on. Smart man. And the other officer says, just trust me, walk into the house. <laughs> like, no. He said, I'm getting too old for this shit. Uh, the two officers walked in. Almost immediately, they were pelted by water droplets. As they stood inside the front door, uh, uh, Patrolman Richard Wolbert witnessed droplets of water traveling horizontally. He says one large ball of water passed right between him and the other officer and traveled into the next room. Oh, like, like water does. Like water does. Yeah. In Donnie Darko. It sounds like a Donnie Darko situation. I've never seen it. You've never seen Donnie Darko? I have it on DVD. You should watch it. never seen it. And then you could be one of those people that go, I get Donnie Darko. I get it. I get it. I understand what's okay. going on. Yeah. Nobody knows what the hell's going on. Uh, 
So, strangely, everything appeared to only be in the living room. Uh, one of the officers says that he felt a chill go up his spine as he walked through the house. He says that things were happening that he never dreamed could possibly happen. There was no way for them to explain what was going on. He believed that Don was possessed. At this point, the officers left to report the incident to their chief of police, while the Kiefers and Don, who had gone hours without food, walked across the street to get something to eat. Hours? They'd gone hours. Wow. Even though I thought they were eating dinner. Yeah. So, whatever. Uh, the landlord, Ron, and his wife remained behind. Ron says that once everyone else left, the rain stopped and the house returned to normal. He and his wife began to think that the rain was coming from either Don or one of the Kiefers. They were not sure which one it was coming from at the time, but since the rain left when they left, they were pretty sure they had something to do with this. We know your tricks. By that point, it had been 23 hours since the mysterious rain had began. Uh, so... When so back at the Kiefer's house, uh, when Don and the Kiefer's returned, the uh, landlord's wife confronted Don, accusing him of somehow causing all the trouble on purpose. She and Jeannie yelled at him, telling him that he needed to make it stop. As they did this, the pots, pans, and cabinets in the kitchen started rattling. Then the lights went out. Don says he was levitated off the floor and his torso was twisted. One witness says a green glow surrounded him. After floating in the air briefly, he screamed as he was pushed five feet across the kitchen and into a corner. He says it felt like someone was pushing him all over his body at once. He says it scared him so much he felt like a newborn. After Don landed in the corner, more scratches appeared, this time in the shape of a cross near his inner elbow. Oh. Uh... After that incident, Jeannie rubbed from the Bible and tried to exercise Don. The rain then started hitting her and only her. After a few hours, the strange inc- a few hours after the strange incident in the kitchen, the officers re- returned with their chief, who was very skeptical of all of this. When he came inside, he was also pelted with rain. The officers believed that Roberts, the chief, felt embarrassed and put on the spot, possibly thinking they expected him to give them an answer about what was happening. But no one could explain what the hell was going on. Uh, the next day, acting against the specific orders of the chief, three veteran officers went to the Kiefer home to try and figure out what was going on. They placed a paper bag over Don's head to make sure he was not creating the rain by spitting. <laughs> He's got a lot of spit. Yeah. Spits out, goes sideways. One of the officers, Bill Davies, says that... He- as that he maybe get, he was just ugly too. They're like, all right, just, I, I can't, can't concentrate with this guy's face being out. There's a reason why this man was in jail. Yeah. Uh, one of the officers, Bill Davies, says that he gave Don a gold cross to hold. Almost immediately, Don told him that it was burning his hands, and he threw it on the ground. When Davies picked it up, he noticed that it was hot. Oh. Moments later, the rain stirred up again. Another officer says that all of a sudden, Don was lifted off the ground and thrown across the room. He says the force was as if a bus had hit Don. When they removed the bag from his head, they discovered three claw marks on the side of his neck, and he was bleeding. Uh, They ended up calling a preacher, Reverend Johnson, to the house. Um, The uh, Kiefers and the Van Wise kept vigil while Reverend Johnson prayed for Don. As he started to pray, Don appeared to go into a convulsion. He started to shake, and then he pulled himself up into a ball. Ron says that the longer Reverend Johnson prayed, the more Don began to relax. Uh, Suddenly, the house was quiet, and he was quiet. 
As she stood there watching, as the wife of the landlord stood there watching this, she felt the house itself seemed to take on a totally different, more peaceful feeling. By the time Reverend Johnson finished praying, the rain was gone. Almost an hour had passed since... Uh, power of prayer. Power of prayer, baby. Uh, so they end up... Everybody believes there was an evil force involved here. Uh, there's been paranormal investigators have, that have, uh, you know, went into this house. Uh, Don ended up... Um, Years later, so this was in what year? Eighty-three. Uh, Eighty-three. So I'm assuming he went back to jail, and then you served a sentence, whatever. Then in October 2012, he surrendered himself to the police after he was charged with setting fire to a restaurant in Pennsylvania. Uh, according to the police, he was hired by the restaurant's owner to burn it down, and he was later released on bail. Uh, so. There's a uh, paranormal researcher named Robert Bartholomew who was examined in this case. He believes that the rain in the house may have been the result of ice damming. This occurs when air, when warm air enters an attic space and melts snow on the roof. Yeah. When temperatures drop at night, ice can form. Water can become trapped under the ice and eventually leak into the house. But that wouldn't explain why the, it stopped and started. Yeah, it would only hit the one person. And just target people. So, I mean, I don't... But what's the alternative that this motherfucker is making it rain? There's a lot of witnesses to shit, yeah. though, in this one, which is and a lot of law enforcement, you know. So unless everybody has got together to come up with this, you know, hoax, that's a lot of people to back up this story. But at the same time, say it is a demonic possession. That is a lame demon. Rain. I just make it real wet. Yeah. Can you make it rain blood? No. Nope. Just, just water. No, just water. <laughs> I, I'm scared. <laughs> I don't like blood. Yeah, I don't. The I'm, sight of it makes me kind of <laughs> nauseous. I'm, I'm, you made me wet. I'm uncomfortably wet in my own home. Thanks a lot. Yeah, maybe it was like a, the demon of a guy that drowned. Yeah. So. I think it was just, like you said, price snow on the roof came down. I still, I don't see how it would only, it would start and stop. It would target people. But this is, I don't know. That's. I, I just don't believe in, like, the paranormal, I guess. So, like, there has to be, like, a, a explanation. Yeah, it should be. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. Okay, well, make this show make sense, yeah. Joel. Oh, good luck. You start with that. Good luck. And we'll move on, because that's the biggest mystery. Yeah. Is what are we doing here? What are we doing? We got right. tats. We got some really nice tats. We do. Hey, I like your tats, man. Thanks, man. Nice ink. Yeah, I got some. Yeah. <laughs> They're addictive. They are addictive. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I think that's it. That was, that was a lot of funsies. A lot of pooping. Yeah. Poop and con men. And... You mean me while I was sitting here recording? Uh, yeah, I can smell it. Okay. Yeah. I was hoping you you got a little taller. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Check out Bandcamp. Yep. Uh, check out uh, their show. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back with uh, the next 10 minutes. More mysteries. Goodbye. Bye.